0: Hey everybody, this is Dylan. Before we get started, I just wanted you all to know that the reason this is coming out on Tuesday is because we took a day off for Labor Day, but we will be back to our regular schedule of every other Monday, starting on our next show, which comes out Monday, September 18th. So, sorry for the delay. Please enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Z-Prime on the Grid, a show about issues concerning the energy industry. I'm your host, Dylan Lockwood. I'm joined by Head of Research and Content, Christine Richards. How are you, Christine?
1: I'm pretty good, Dylan. How about you?
0: Yeah, I'm doing quite well. Uh, And we're also joined by Aaron Hardick, Research Analyst. How are you today, Aaron?
1: I'm doing really well, Dylan. Um,
2: The weather in Austin is, is pretty nice. Um, unfortunately, that's because of all the disaster that came with Harvey. But in the aftermath, uh, Central Texas is actually getting some pretty cool weather for this time of year. So I'm I'm doing pretty well.
0: Uh, yes, Z Prime is based in Austin, Texas. Uh, the hurricane was thankfully a bit kinder to us than it was to other parts of Texas. But we you know, we have family, friends, and colleagues who have all been affected by this. So if you're looking to help the people of Texas, head on over to RedCross.org. Every little bit helps. Uh, there are people who are you know, just trying to get their lives back right now. And with that, uh, we'll move into our show. Uh, we have a good show today. We're going to be talking about uh, demand response. It's a very hot topic right now. As the grid is updating itself in terms of infrastructure and uh, technology and different types of generation coming on, demand response is being looked at as a way of sort of mitigating a lot of the a lot of the swings that have been going on with you know, production and consumption and, and all that stuff. And we're going to dive it. We're going to dive into that uh, with our guest today, principal of Northbridge Energy Partners and a contributor on Forbes.com, Peter Kelly Detweiler, known to us as PKD. So let's get into it. Uh, with our experts here, Christine, just starting us off, what in a nutshell is demand response?
1: So, demand response—I mean, that can be difficult to to summarize in a not, nutshell. But I mean, really, it's an opportunity for consumers to play a significant role um, in the operation of of the electric grid. Um, you know, essentially by reducing or shifting their electricity usage, you know, during during peak periods. You know, in response to things such as uh, time-based rates or or financial incentives. Uh, I, I mean, I think demand response. I, I know you mentioned Dylan. It's it's, it's a hot topic now, um, but it's definitely something that's that's been around for a while. I think um, you know what's a little bit different as we're looking at it now um, is that there's definitely an evolution going on, um, and we can get into that a little bit later, but. Um, I definitely th- think there are some changes going on with demand response that we can we can get into a little bit more deeply.
0: Aaron, do you think that demand response is a reliable way of easing grid strain when you're essentially gambling on people, Americans no less, of consuming less?
2: Yeah, like Christine just mentioned, um, demand response is really going through you know an, an evolution. Traditionally, when we think of demand response, it's just um, a one-way communication from the utility to the consumer to tell them, you know, to maybe change their uh, energy consumption or their energy usage. And and that would normally happen um, during, you know, emergency events or when prices were, were really high. But... Now, um, as the grid becomes smarter and devices on the grid get smarter, you have the capability to communicate two ways, and grid operators and utility companies can change and shift load faster and more efficiently than they could before. So demand response is, is evolving in that sense. It's more of a two-way communication. That also in- involves the consumer. So I, I think it... Is starting to become yeah an option. I think it's a viable technology and solution in that sense. But we're still in it's still evolving. Um, I think there's still a lot more to come um, with demand response. But I think the technology is there.
0: Do you think it's uh, do you think it's like a a band aid just to, to help alleviate the pain of a larger problem, or does it have a significant role to play going forward uh, in areas with you know high peak loads?
2: You know I think. Has a significant role to play um, moving forward, particularly you know as as a function as a way to to help incorporate DERs into the grid. You know electric vehicles, energy storage, um, solar PV. It, it it's really going to evolve into a way to manage all, all these different devices. Um, you know DERs on the grid. So no, I don't think it's it's a band aid, but I think. Whatever the next evolution of demand response is, is going to be pretty different from what we view as demand response now, and and I think the future of demand response is, is bright.
1: I think Dylan, just to your to your point around, um, you know, U.S. consumers and and you know, getting them to actually consume less. I mean, you know, a lot of what what's going on with demand response is you know during those certain time periods. Um, you know, really getting people to, to be able to participate. And, you know, it's also just that that incentive structure, um, you know, having the right incentives in place, um, you know, people will will take action. Uh, and I, I think it's also a huge opportunity for all this digitalization we've been talking about um, and, and really just an opportunity to be more interactive. Uh, I mean, I live in, in Denver and pretty much the only thing that we have that i know of that's around you know something like demand response is direct load control where our utility can can cycles pe- cycle people's air conditioners on and off during times of peak demand you know i mean that's that's some way to kind of automate it um it's not the most i think elegant or consumer friendly way of doing it uh, I, I, I think it's funny working in the energy industry um, to hear people talk about, you know, their utilities. And I was talking with um, the person who was working on our air conditioner and he said, oh, you know, those devices that are on air conditioners, you know, those cause a lot of problems. And I always just I always just take them off uh, whenever I see them. Um, So I think with the digitalization, there's really an opportunity to um, sort of better curate that that customer experience, introduce more automation, but also you know automation that again, just just gives people that better experience and and really can fine tune um, some of the things that have been going on with demand response for a
0: while. So Christine, do we know what can lead to success with a DR program or what can lead to failure with a DR program?
1: Yeah, Dylan, I mean, there are a lot of different factors that come into the into play. Um, with the success of those those programs, I think one thing that's that's been really interesting is just the way that utilities actually approach um, testing and and understanding the success of their their programs. Uh, we have some research that we've done with with Nexant, and that report should be coming out in the next couple of weeks, uh, where we ask the utilities about you know how do they test their programs like like Demand Response or other customer engagement programs. And we found that a lot of utilities, you know, either wait till the end of, of their program cycle uh, to, to do the testing or, you know, essentially wait till they reach a point where they, they feel like they need to test. Or they're just testing one hypothesis of what they think might work. You know, for example, of what I was talking about earlier with my utility uh, you know, they have this direct load control program um, with air conditioners. It's It's been out for a while, um, and I really haven't seen, you know, a lot of improvement or changes in the ways that they approach things. Um, so my assumption is, you know, they're, they're really, um, you know, just doing very infrequent testing or, or just kind of looking at the testing every so often. And with the research we did with Nexent, we found that there are really opportunities for utilities to be doing testing on a regular basis, um, really testing multiple hypotheses, um, new ways to engage customers, you know, whether it's around um, emails or text messages that they're sending out, and, and really can create an environment of continuous testing to understand these programs and how successful they are. Uh, And from our research with utilities, we found that, you know, utilities are considering taking on more of these approaches, um, which I think will be really important going forward, particularly as we start to move beyond just pure demand response programs in terms of direct load control to ones that are going to incorporate distributed energy resources energy storage, all those different elements are just going to make so, such a complex environment for utilities. Um, they're really going to have to be continuously testing to understand what sort of impacts these, these programs are really having on their organizations, as well as their customers.
0: Did any of that data kind of explain elements that do make for those successful programs?
1: A lot of it really came down to the, the regulatory environment you know a lot of utilities just the way things are structured doing that sort of almost like continuous testing is is this something that's not typically supported with with the traditional way that utilities have approached customer programs so you know a big piece of that is just you know getting that right regulatory structure and then also just leveraging the data that that utilities already have so you know, in some cases, um, if, if utilities have AMI meters, um, they can already start leveraging the data and testing to see how customers are responding to different different scenarios um, without the customer even necessarily having to be involved or, or know that the, this testing is going on. So definitely some, some different ways that, that utilities can start to find some successes.
0: So Aaron, in your experience going around the country, talking to people, What's the current conversation you're hearing around demand response? Uh, Do you have a sense of where people's heads are at with these kinds of programs?
2: I I think Christine kind of touched on it. It's um, really trying to figure out how these different types of programs are impacting, you know, the operations, you know, of their organization and how they're really impacting um, the grid. Uh, I think a, a large conversation that's happening around demand response, which Christine also mentioned, is leveraging the right data and, and how they can, you know, take that data and make meaningful analysis out of it, um, you know, so that demand response, you know, can solve problems, um, you know, quicker than it has before. You know, you're transitioning from the utilities approach to probably using like an Excel spreadsheet to determine, you know, how much load would be available. That would be um, an example of what demand response used to be. But now, you know, there's so much data coming from, you know, real-time devices that now utilities have to figure out how are they going to leverage all of that data, that real-time data um, to manage load. And I think that is, you know, a hot topic in demand response right now.
1: I think another thing we're seeing is is not only that data and analytics piece that, that Aaron mentioned, but also this question of, um, you know, how how much computing power needs to be out at the at the grid's edge. Uh, you know, as we have all these different devices out there, you know, as we in do, introduce this increasing automation, um, you know, there are a lot of questions of, well, you know, how much intelligence really needs to be at the the grid edge. Uh, you know, we've seen companies like like iTron, you know, who recently purchased Converge, um, and and we see that move being, hey, you know, Converge has a lot of those those capabilities more at the at the grid edge, going just beyond the meter, um, and, and that's going to be a big thing that we'll we'll see moving forward. Is just you know what sort of intelligence is needed at the grid edge and um, you know what sort of that that ecosystem of devices, data analytics, and and technologies you really need to have to to move demand response efforts forward.
2: Yeah, I, I, I like that, Christine. It's really about you know the communication um, you know part of the communication aspect of the grid as well. That's really playing into um, demand response and where where demand response is going in the future.
0: Yeah, and we'll uh, we'll get into that in just a minute with Peter. When we come back, we'll be talking with Peter Kelly Detweiler. Don't go anywhere. There's more Z Prime on the Grid coming your way. Welcome back to Z Prime on the Grid. Our guest today is principal of Northbridge Energy Partners and a contributor on Forbes.com, Peter Kelly Detweiler. How are you today? Quite
3: well, thank you.
0: Excellent. Well, we're happy to have you on. Uh, We're talking about demand response. As we just talked about, demand response has been around for a while, but it's been getting a lot of hype recently. In your experience, from your perspective... How is demand response evolving, especially as things like distributed energy resources are entering the grid?
3: Well, so there's a pretty clear historical migration path. Uh, Demand response, what I'll refer to as DR, uh, started, oh, decades ago, 60s and 70s, and it was then in the form of large industrial interruptible rates, which were in part uh, for economic development and load building for the utilities as well. And then as we moved into the uh, 2000s, 2005 2006 period um, regulators in competitive power markets begin to see the need for demand response because we had at that point in time in many of the markets created capacity that is steel in the ground the ability to provide electrons at specific periods of time and uh, and also balancing services like 10-minute ancillary services stuff to balance the grid in relatively short periods of time And uh, with FERC's help, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the conversation turned to, well, what can we do on the customer side of the meter to have customers provide services that are the equivalent of what generation has typically provided? So around 2006, 2007, demand response started to uh, come into its own with companies like Converge, and C Power and Enernoc, and the company that I um, was involved with, at Constellation New Energy, where we started that up, or Constellation Energy, where we started a DR group from scratch. Uh, the early days of that were fairly unsophisticated, where there were one way notifications, and oftentimes we wouldn't see what our resources were doing until later. And then as that resource got to eight, nine, 10% of total capacity in some markets, like the Mid Atlantic PGM pool regulators began to say, oh, this needs to be more stringent. And so the requirements began to get tighter uh, and not just for summer demand response, but for year round capabilities. And then as digitization or digitization or digitalization, whatever you wanna call it, enters into the picture, which is essentially the dual out of a simple nervous system with connectivity and sensors at the grid edge. Now we get to that next level where we have the potential for real time interaction of end use assets to monitor grid conditions and prices, and change their behavior in response to those conditions. So, so that's the general migration path that we've been following over the last, say, 30 to
0: 40 years. So, yeah, you kind of you kind of talked about how the programs have been uh, evolving. So, what role has, does technology play in that evolution for both the consumer and the utility? How does IoT, Internet of Things, facilitate that?
3: Okay, so there's two distinct pieces the way I see it. One is you have the ability to send signals really quickly oh, and also create intelligence at the grid edge because as we get millions of devices that have connectivity and grid awareness in them, a central processor won't be able to handle all this. So you'll have something like New York Rev where we'll know micro conditions at various places on the grid and assets will respond, and IoT can help make that happen. But the other thing you have to do is you have to know what your assets are capable of delivering at some kind of a larger level. So, for example, um, if you have a whole bunch of industrial players that are capable of dropping 10 megs, 15 megawatts of of capacity with a short lead time, you need to know they're, they're actually running before you ask them to shed that load. If they're not running, they don't have the load to shed. So there's this monitoring capability that used to be hard to get at and now is a lot easier, again, with connectivity. And then you have the M&V, the measurement and verification, did that load actually do what you paid it to do? And so you have places like ISO New England where they're sending out very frequent signals um, to the ISO to monitor those assets. And if there's an event, the ISO can see really, really quickly, is the load performing as I expected? Is it doing what I would expect the generator to do? And some markets essentially, you know, in the old days and even some now, they send out a signal And it's kind of like dropping a rock in the well and you don't even hear the sound of the splash for a month because you don't get your M&V information back uh, for some period of time. So you don't know if you got what you paid for. IoT and digitization helps you have a much cleaner, clearer and real-time view of what's happening, accurate view of what's happening on the grid.
1: Yeah, Peter, you talk about all these different pieces coming together. I mean, do you see... Demand response or, or DR is, is a dying term, you know, as all these different elements come together, or do you think it, it's still going to be relevant going forward?
3: Well, I've never liked it as a, as a term because there's there's something about it that uh, suggests um, a command and control. I demand, you respond, right? Yeah. It's kind of a, a, ma- a masochist approach to business. Um, what, what I used to have on my business card when I was heading up that group was, head of dynamic energy management mm. um, because because it was already obvious by 2010 or so that this, this constellation of assets was going to become a lot richer with a lot more players in a short period of time, and they were going to be able to provide more services. So once you start to have electric vehicles which now can unidirectionally charge but within three or four years will probably be bi-directional actors on a transactive grid once you're monitoring state of production for solar panels both behind the meter and in front of the meter utility scale and wind and everything else now you can't help but be involved in a much larger orchestra where instead of you know a quartet you've got thousands of musicians on the stage that are all interacting with with each other, and that's not demand response anymore. That is dynamic energy management, informed by bits and bytes that are flying all over the place in real time.
1: So do you think a term like dynamic energy management, I mean, could capture all the things that we're talking about, including, you know, distributed energy resources, things like that?
3: Um, Yeah, I mean, I haven't come up with a better term myself in the last six years, which shows you the limited uh, CPU in my brain here. But essentially, I think it actually covers, because the dynamism essentially covers, in my belief, both the pricing and the market conditions and the activity of the assets. And the energy management is essentially what's going on in that space.
1: And I I, I like it too, because, um, you know, I think a lot of times people talk about distributed energy management, but it it feels like we're also looking at more than just that distributed aspect. Um, you know, there's centralized generation that's playing a role, the pricing, I mean, all the different things that you talked about. So, um, yeah, it seems like a more all-encompassing term for, for what we're looking at.
3: Yeah, because the distributed side is just one side of that reflective mirror that th- those two pieces, by necessity, have to integrate. This is, electricity is the only market in the world where what you produce and what you consume happens instantaneously. Except for a little bit of storage on the edges, right? So by by definition, it has to involve both sides of that ledger in a real time balancing act.
0: Yeah, I had a question about that. So if the incentive structure of a DR program drives people towards more energy efficient technology, self generation, smart homes, and just a generally lower energy lifestyle, does that have the potential to threaten consumption rates at non peak hours, especially with there being a current lack of storage infrastructure.
3: Oh, yeah. My personal belief is we're about to move into dematerialization um, of society in general, where we're substituting, and, and we've talked about it at ETS about this, where we're substituting uh, human brain power yoked to sp- uh, super powerful uh, high-performance computers that are capable of doing you know quadrillion calculations per second. You already see... Uh, so so now your material science improves. You're going to start to see more use-directed electrons. So I'll give you a couple examples. In Sweden, when you're driving down the road at night, the streetlights aren't on all the time at 100%. There's five or six streetlights on ahead of you and none behind you. And if you stop in one spot, the lights intensify, and then a signal goes out to 911. Or in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the street lighting has 10 zones that have chips in them made by Echelon, And they deliver different lighting levels based on crime rates, neighborhood preferences, and so on. So now, instead of using 100% of X, you might only be using in Sweden less than 1% of X. And in a place like Cambridge, you know, 50% of X. Then when you might start to move to, say, additive manufacturing, you know, 3D printing, you're not um, manufacturing through a process of reductive work, you know, where you're cutting away things and only keeping what you want. Now you're only producing what you need. So I believe personally that when, within five to 10 years, we're not going to just see this reduction where we've seen a, a decline of 3% in energy use over the last 10 years and uh, 6% 6 of the last nine years we've seen drop in energy consumption in the U.S. I think we're going to see a, a long-term persistent decline in energy use even as the economy continues to grow because we're substituting intelligence for raw materials.
0: Well, that was that was really interesting i've never never really heard that angle before granted i'm pretty new to this
3: yeah so i'm actually going out to lawrence berkeley national laboratory in about three weeks to go and talk to the people in the materials genome initiative out there where their job is essentially just to focus on how do you build better things for batteries for solar panels etc how do you increase or improve the material science to convert more electrons out of wind or fuel or sunlight or whatever. But then the whole other side of the equation is our energy consuming devices as they get smarter. And look at led light classic example it uses a quarter of the energy of an incandescent light, just if you left them on all the time, but that's only part of the conversation. An incandescent light doesn't know when to turn off, but an led light knows if you're in the room or not. And so Now, again, you get what I refer to as use-directed electrons. You only use them when you need them.
0: So bringing it back to DR for a bit, but still kind of somewhat related, what do you see as the role of third-party energy participants in demand response going forward?
3: So we call them often curtailment service providers like the Enernoc or the C-Power, people like that. Uh, Utilities can do this on their own, but... It necessitates reinvention of the wheel, um, which is really inefficient. So uh, what you can do, and I think the the role of the third-party aggregator increases over time because they have the incentive to invest in uh, better platforms, information platforms, um, better ways of presenting information to customers, uh, better sales processes, and ultimately more automation. For us at Constellation, for example, it was easy for us to get, relatively speaking, the 10 megawatt steel mill load or aggregate manufacture concrete. It was a lot harder for us to go into buildings and harvest energy in a building. Why? Because a factory is basically, you know, one big machine or a number of motors could give you all kinds of megawatts versus going into the build space where it was much more artisanal. You had to go and figure out what the fans were doing, what the chillers were doing, air exchangers, all that stuff, and integrate with control systems, which were different in every building across a campus, let's say. So that took a lot more upfront investment that really you need the expertise of a curtailment service provider who's familiar with and comfortable in that environment as it in invested in its own people and its diagnostic tools, et cetera, to really help make that whole third of the economy, which is commercial building space make that part of the economy also grid aware and capable of participating in a real meaningful way in dr programs and same in the in the resi space yeah we can do the pool pumps and the thermostats those aren't that hard but getting to the next layer beyond that to say smart refrigerators or things like that that again um, probably is best left in the hands of someone who can aggregate and orchestrate that information on behalf of their customers, whether it's grids like ISOs or RTOs or utilities.
0: So since there's an increased interest in DR and it seems to only be expanding going forward, do you see aggregators having a significant role going forward? Is that kind of a going to be a growing industry, do you believe?
3: You know, it's interesting because I'm not sure it's going to be a growing industry. In fact, we've seen contraction and consolidation over the most recent years. The ITRON um, acquisition, for example, being, um, you know, one of the most recent ones. Um, and, and Enernoc uh, being bought by Enel. Um, so I see a lot of integration of these curtailment service provider aggregator capabilities integrated into larger companies and becoming that Suite of overall services that they offer to both end-use customers and to grids as well.
1: I have a question too around um, the the role of of aggregators versus, I mean, very large uh, commercial and industrial customers, facilities, things like that. I mean, we've seen a lot of interest from uh, universities, you know, airports, where I mean, they're they're large enough that. Um, you know, they can have a pretty significant impact. They're looking at microgrids, things like that. I mean, how does that play out with, with aggregators? I mean, do you think we'll see a lot more individual participants, or will it really, you know, still move ahead with sort of this, this aggregator model?
3: Okay, so if we think about, let's, let's examine a microgrid, for, for, for instance. Okay, so the first role of that microgrid is to provide the resiliency and the islanding capability if you have something like we just saw in Texas or Mm -hmm. Hurricane Sandy or something like that. But then in order to make those economics work as well as they possibly can, and you've got assets in a microgrid, which always involve backup gen or storage by definition. And then you have some kind of a a generating resource, more and more renewables, et cetera. And then you have load that you're matching, just like in a larger grid. So part of what you want to do when you're optimizing the economics is figure out, okay, whether it's storage or whether it's generators That let's assume they're EPA compliant. How can I maximize the economic value of those within the overall market context, not just my microgrid? If I'm grid connected, I may be able to provide ancillary services, you know, 10 minute spinning reserve, that sort of thing. I may be able to provide, if I have a battery, frequency regulation, you know, up and down grid stabilization services. And potentially, I can also provide capacity to the grid for longer duration, you know, for the four or six hour programs. So, if I can do all those things on a yearly basis, I have now changed the balance sheet for my project. So, when I'm trying to pencil out the economic benefits and cost of this whole thing, it may be that resiliency alone, I'm not willing to pay for. But if I can get those assets to interact with the power market and get a revenue stream that I'm fairly confident it's going to look like X or Y, I'm, do, I'm going to do that. But I can't register that capacity directly with the ISO. It doesn't make sense for me to become a, a registrant and also figure out my capacity positions in the marketplace three years out. A company like Enernoc or some of these other ones, Power, if they're playing in PJM, for example, or ISO New England, they have to be involved in auctions for capacity and take a short position three years out, get into the market and say, three years from now, I will supply to you, grid operator, X amount of capacity. And then their job is to go and find it. Someone who has a microgrid is not gonna wanna basically go through the trouble of registering with and vetting the capacity with the ISOs three years out. It's too much of a hassle. So they just assume give up a share of the revenue for someone else to take that over and outsource it to them. I, I have one more sort of layer of the onion we, we should talk about, which is going to emerge very shortly. So the other thing to think about, most people talk about or think about demand response either in the ISO RTO level like ERCOT, you know, t- Texas or PGM, or NISO, the New York ISO, or ISO New England, or they may think of a larger utility program. But as, as we move forward, and we get into this IoT and data rich world, we're gonna see what we've already seen in Brooklyn with the BQDM, the Brooklyn Queens Demand Management Project, where we begin, we begin to know what our avoided costs are at various parts on the grid. And last year at ETS, one of the presenters there was, was talking about overlaying GIS, onto the utility grid called the science of where. And, and essentially when you overlay the GIS, now you can look at all of the investments you're gonna to have to make in the grid if you have growth pockets in certain areas. Because even if energy declines overall, there's still areas where it's probably gonna grow. Or you have 50, 60, 70, 80 year old assets that need to be replaced. Well, in some cases, maybe they don't have to be replaced or maybe they can be downsized if you have all these non-wire alternatives. DERs including demand response out there so instead of a market now where you're looking at an RTO or ISO environment with a couple zones we may see a world that fractures into thousands of pieces where there are avoided costs all over the grid that are time differentiated which is what's starting to emerge from the New York REV process and now demand or dynamic energy management actually takes on this whole new layer which is way more refined and location-intensive and specific. And that alone can only happen through overlaying a big data environment and really understanding what the utility avoided costs are. And, and this is what's happening in, in the Northeast with these grid modernization hearings right now, is the utilities and the public utilities commissions are starting to figure out, how can we take grids that are 50% utilized right now, so way underutilized as an asset, and figure out how do we make these dynamic energy management resources like DR batteries, EVs, et cetera, How do we bring those into the grid to create overall efficiency for the structure with which we now deliver our electrons, providing benefits to society as a whole and And DR or dynamic energy management will be one piece of that larger ecosystem?
0: Well, that's certainly fascinating. Uh, there's way more to this than than I initially thought. I find it really interesting how what seems like a straightforward concept you know just changing rates during peak hours is actually kind of incorporating all these different uh challenges and opportunities of the modern grid and the grid of the future as well
3: yes and it doesn't always involve energy efficiency either um just the same way batteries often involve say a 10 percent round trip loss so you're actually using more energy than you otherwise would uh, because of those efficiency losses Same thing with some DR. You may be pre-cooling a building in the morning so that you're riding that thermal drift into the daytime. You may actually increase your overall consumption by a few percentage points, but still save a whole lot of energy just because you're shifting the assets and increasing the utilization of the grid. Which right now, if you take the top 100 hours of grid demand, you know, during those hot summer days, The infrastructure investment for those top 100 hours is estimated at somewhere around 8% of the total costs of the grid. So if you can flatten those 100 hours down, there is basically one twelfth of your savings you can get and bring back to society right away.
0: Sounds like a pretty good deal. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Peter. It's always great to talk to you. We'll hope to see you soon. It was my pleasure. Thank you. How can people find out more about you and your work?
3: So a couple things. One is www.northbridgeep.com, which is our website. Um, and then the other thing, a lot of people who have time to kill, uh, Google my name and Forbes, and then whatever it is they want to know about. I've written 260 plus articles for Forbes on everything from LEDs to storage, to electric vehicles, to solar panels, to just about anything in the electricity nukes, whatever. So, um, I did run into someone who said they'd read everything that I'd ever written, and I just looked at them with pity because that's weeks of their life they won't get back. But if you want to find out more about me, that's one place to go.
0: Man, 260. I've written six articles, so I need to catch up.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, the great thing about Forbes is I get to talk to the CEOs of everyone from IKEA to the head of GE Digitization to um, at ETS last year, I get to talk to Ganesh Bell, who's head of GE's Digitization, Mary Powell, who's the CEO of Green Mountain, and, um, and then um, Richard Kaufman, who's the energy czar, who's heading up New York Rift. So essentially, I get to talk to some of the smartest, hardest-driving, creative people in the industry and then think about what they just said, let it percolate, send it back to them, for their thoughts and comments. And essentially now I've got these dialogues going with all of these experts in the space. It's a fantastic opportunity.
0: And next time you have that dialogue, you should get all your smart friends to come on Z-Prime on the Grid. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Hopefully we'll get to see you at ETS 18 as well. All right, that'll do it for us today with Z-Prime on the Grid. Uh, I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Christine. Thanks, Dylan. And Aaron.
1: Yeah, thank you, Dylan.
0: You're both very welcome, as always. You can find out more about Z-Prime at zprime.com. You can find more of our research, including that Nexent paper that Christine was talking about that will be coming out soon, at etsinsights.com. If you'd like to register for ETS 18 in March of 2018, you can go to ets18.co. And if you want to help... The people of Houston, Texas, recover from the devastating effects of Hurricane Harvey, you can go to redcross.org uh, and donate as much as you can. My name is Dylan. Thank you, and have a nice week. <music> the seven the 711 uh taquitos are actually not bad unless they've been there the entire day but they use, like if you know the uh, like I know the hours that my local 711 sets them out generally so if you can time it around then quite good
1: good to know